You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right. So I think we're recording. Zach, thank you so much for coming on today and talking with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Absolutely. So I'm going to do a quick little introduction here for you, Zach. And uh, correct me if I have anything missing. But so Zach's an ultra marathoner, which basically means he warms up with a traditional marathon. Uh, <laughs> he holds the American record in the hundred mile uh, in a hundred mile race, right? Under twelve hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I was doing a little bit of math. I, so for perspective, that's like running a seven minute mile for basically twelve straight hours, a little bit under twelve hours. Is that right? Yeah, I think it comes out to be like seven minute pace and then an extra half a second per mile. So it's right about seven flat. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. And so I was thinking, I was like, if you know, if you do a, a marathon in three hours, that's con- considered a pretty phenomenal time. And that's basically like running four straight marathons at that rate. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's always interesting because I think when um, – when I'm talking to like other ultra marathon runners, they have a little more like context, I think in terms of like, you know, hundred miles and things like that. But, um, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll tell someone who's just kind of not really in into ultra running or kind of new to the running community and it doesn't necessarily register in their mind. Uh, but then if you put it in context, like that's like qualifying for Boston, like, almost three times, four times in a row, then exactly. they're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like it's just an absolutely phenomenal feat. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, the sport of ultra running is, is really uh, a little bit of a goofy one in my opinion, because we have these uh, it's small enough sport. It's certainly grown quite a bit in the last decade or so, but it's still small enough where we're, we can't really compartmentalize too much, but, uh, within the sport, you can have anything from like a 50 kilometer race that goes through like huge mountain passes and you're climbing and descending like over 10,000 feet. Then you can have like a six day event where you get these guys and gals who are just trying to see how far they can get in six days. Uh, and it's on like a, you know, flat 400 meter track or something like that. So when you kind of put those two per or those two like, um, setups next to each other, you'd be like, those are almost two different sports. It's like the only similarity really is you're moving your body, you're self-propelled. So um, it is interesting to kind of look at like what people are doing in the different aspects of the sport or the different like types of uh, um, races and things like that and kind of uh, learn from that and, you know, try different types of ultra marathons. Mm -hmm. So I was actually a cross country runner in high school and one of the things that stuck out, what sticks out the most to cross country runners is, you know, your times, what we ran, you know, you race 5k, uh, which for you is, is basically a sprint. Uh, but so 5k, which is basically 3.2 miles. Uh, but the biggest factor is the undulation. So if you're running tons of Hills, like that makes, that would make all the difference versus, mm-hmm. you know, what you would do on a track. Uh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't register unless you're actually running, doing those races. Yeah, it, it's a it's a, like a totally different approach to building up for a race, and you know I'm experiencing that firsthand right now. Historically, um, you know I've done a lot, or not a lot, well, a lot, I guess, trail races. Um, but really, in terms of just like kind of building a program to peak for what I'd call like a mountain trail race, mm-hmm. um, this lo- like winter kind of spring 
early summer timeframe of this year is the first time I've really kind of put a full cycle on a trail mountain program. Yep. Um, so I'm preparing for a race out in California called the Western States 100. And in that race has like a little bit of everything you climb up this, this steep like ski hill into the high country up to like just over 9,000 feet. You kind of hang out in the high country for a while before you descend down into these, this Canyon section where you just kind of go up and down for a few hours. Um, uh, and it's like, you definitely have to have climbing and descending skills and at least a little bit of technical running skill as well. So, yep. um, just kind of the, the trajectory of, uh, like going through a program in a different way has been really eye opening to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. So if it's all right with you, one of the things like, I want to talk about, and I have a few notes on a few things here, uh, and that, well, we can just, you know, go on tangents if, if if that's what we want to do. Sure. Uh, but one of the things I want to talk about is your podcast that you're running. It's called the HPO for human performance outliers podcast for those listening. Uh, and it's a podcast that I've been listening to and I'll tell you why I have thoroughly been enjoying it. Uh, and so for some context for our listeners, Zach is an ultra marathoner. That is a very unique kind of performance training. His co-host, Dr. Sean Baker is he's an orthopedic surgeon, but his training would be considered likely the polar opposite. It's very, very glycolytic, high intensity, explosive kinds of training. Uh, you know, he his, he has world records on uh, the concept two rower. Uh, and so what I find very interesting is you guys are both eating a similar diet, which I want to talk about a lot about here. Uh, but this, this diet and performance, what I'm trying to say is tr you know, trying to optimize performance, whether it be endurance or high intensity, like uh, Dr. Baker's doing, or me, I more train in what I will call the vanity area of health and fitness, like more of the bodybuilding. I'm just trying to build <laughs> muscle, lose fat. Uh, but, you know, all of us are eating a very similar diet. So I find that super interesting. And for listeners, you know, I highly recommend their podcast. They've been diving in a lot about into the carnivore diet recently. Uh, as well as a lot of the science behind it. And I kind of like to nerd out on that stuff. So maybe we can touch on some of that, Zach. Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah, you know, that, that's that been a, a fun project uh, with Sean and myself over the last, I guess, almost three months now. Um, I think we just released our 15th episode yesterday. So we're kind of getting some momentum behind it now. But yeah, you know, it was one of those things where when I first started ultra running, um, you know, I started out with a more traditional kind of high carbohydrate endurance type nutrition program. And, yeah. uh, when I went into the high fat approach, uh, after doing it for about a year or so, um, I guess I more or less kind of found myself in a couple different niches, like the ultra running niche, as well as this kind of at the time, this was almost seven years ago. So at the time it was kind of like, you know, what is this bozo doing eating so low exactly. carbohydrate? <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, then you, you become kind of a subject of, you know, podcast guests because you got yeah. something a little different to talk about other than the general, like, well, I did this training and then I did this race and then, you know, rinse and repeat with a new guest. So yeah. just going on all those different podcasts and stuff like that, I think had me interested with like what the podcast world is like from the other side. So mm -hmm. I'd been thinking about starting a podcast for quite a while and I just, you know, hadn't really pulled the trigger for whatever reason. And then when I kind of met Sean, Dr. Sean Baker online, uh, I thought this would be kind of a cool combination with like what you said, where 
you know, he's got kind of that glycolytic fast explosive, like his workouts generally are an hour or less, but there's very little like low intensity involved. Exactly. And my workouts, you know, sometimes like, you know, if I'm peaking for a race, I might do a, do a workout or a long run that, you know, eclipses six, seven hours sometimes. So yeah, it's, it's like a full-time job. That you're- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be, you gotta, you gotta sink some time into it. And uh, you know, ironically enough, that's how I actually got into listening to podcasts too, is I was looking at my training schedule and, and you know, back then I was a full-time teacher too. And I was like, you know, gosh, I'm spending sometimes upwards of 20 hours a week working out. It's like, yep. there's gotta be a way to kill two birds with one stone here. And, um, since my, a lot of my stuff is aerobically based is you can kind of tune into something and sometimes it's a nice little distraction. So, uh, ironically it was around the same time I was getting interested in nutrition and stuff like that too. So I just loaded up the pod, the, the iPod with a bunch of different, um, podcasts. And then when something interested me, I kind of would fact check their research and stuff that they posted show notes and all that. And then, um, that eventually kind of led me to the nutrition approach that I'm doing right now. Yep. And so as one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because when I'm listening to your podcast, uh, you know, obviously Dr. Sean Baker, he's a medical doctor. He's got, you know, study and background in human physiology and anatomy and biochemistry and such. Uh, but man, I'm always super impressed by your questions and (laughs) knowledge of how the body works that I'm like, man, Zach is asking like all these amazing questions, like ones that pop up to my head that I would ask the guest. And it's like, you're nailing them. So (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe we dive into to a little bit of some physiology stuff here in a little bit because I have some questions. Yeah, yeah, um, no, that'd be fun. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me because when I was younger, I hated science. It was like probably my <laughs> least favorite subject, and it was an eye-opening and kind of a more of an enlightening experience for me when I realized it's not about the subject as to whether you hate it or not. It's about tying it to something you're interested it, in. It really is. Well, yeah, once you tie it to something you're interested it. in, you'll you'll go down all the rabbit holes. So. Um, you know, guys like Dr. Baker and some of our guests, like Dr. Ben Bickman, those guys have a much deeper knowledge of some of the like real get into the weeds type uh, scientific stuff. And I think that's probably clear on the podcasts. But, uh, you know, I'm hanging on by a thread sometimes. Oh, <laughs> but- I'd say you're doing way more than hanging on by a thread. I, I'm seriously impressed in every episode. Yeah. You know, I can usually, I've got a a good enough grasp where I can usually pick up on some ideas of like, okay, how does this relate to an endurance runner? How does this relate to an athlete? Uh, and then I can kind of ask, I guess, a question that would maybe more or less address what someone who doesn't have a PhD in a science field would be thinking. And I think that's probably helpful because, you know, if we get too deep into some of the real, you know, hardcore stuff, um, you know, something you can lose listeners who, who haven't had that laid out to them yet. So try to fill that gap as much as possible. (laughs) So, Hey, if we could rewind just a little bit. So about seven years ago, you switched from carb, the traditional carb loading, you know, I didn't cross country before a race, you carb load the night before, et cetera, uh, to a high fat, low carb diet. What, mm-hmm. what triggered that? Were you, was it research or were you not performing as well, you, well as you wanted? Like what, what led to that initial testing? Yeah. You know, I think what I started to notice is what maybe a lot of other athletes that are trying to kind of perform, uh, at a maximum potential notice a little bit later, or they, at the very least, they just push off and push off until the wheels kind of come off. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been kind of a curious person. So I, when I started to notice some really goofy things for like someone who's 24, 25 years old. And when I say goofy, I mean like 
uh, you know, I'd wake up three or four times a night because I'd have to go to the bathroom or just, you know, just mm. restless and things like that. And, uh, a lot of extra swelling in like my ankles and legs after big training blocks and races. Yep. Um, and then, you know, like I said earlier, I was a school teacher at the time. So when I was, when I was working, I would have like big energy swings throughout the course of the day where I'd feel really good. Or I'd feel like, Oh man, I could lay down and take a nap right on the floor here if, if, yep. if it wasn't inappropriate. <laughs> yep. Um, and, uh, you know, so I just kind of noticed like, you know, that's not ideal, certainly not for someone in their mid twenties. Like I should feel like I, you know, have the most energy of my life at this point. Um, and I think when you're doing ultra, ultra endurance sport or just endurance in general, like sometimes it's really easy to see those things and say, Hey, this is just a reality of finding your max potential. Yep. Uh, you kind of, you know, you, you, you make an excuse that health is, is, is kind of a bit of a sacrifice uh, for what you're trying to do athletically. And, um, I'm not, I, I will never say running a hundred miles at max effort, or when I say max effort, I mean, just going as hard as you can for a hundred miles, not like trying to sprint the thing, but like, you know, going to the well in a hundred mile race, uh, is an uphill battle. It's not, it's, I've hit the margin of diminishing returns. <laughs> it's not <laughs> something like no matter how good your diet is, it's probably not something that's going to make me live longer. Um, so in my eyes, it's like, I want to do what I enjoy. That's part of life. Um, but I want to make sure I can minimize the amount of damage I'm doing. If the activity I enjoy could potentially be, you know, harmful to me, uh, by kind of pushing your body, you know, beyond what it's probably intended to do on a, on a regular basis. Uh, so you kind of, with that context, you know, I, I was in love with the sport. I was just getting started. I did not want to have to cut back on training and racing if I didn't have to. So mm my first kind of avenue was let's see if I can address this nutritionally. Yep. And if that works, awesome. If not, I can always revisit. I can always go back to my old nutrition plan. I can always restructure my training and stuff and try to make it more sustainable on that. And if I need to, um, and like I kind of said before, at that same time, I had started listening to a lot of podcasts and, uh, you know, I picked up on some of the stuff, uh, some of the work by, uh, Dr. Jeff Bollock and Dr. Stephen Finney. Yep. And some of the stuff that they mentioned kind of was like, like rang in my head as okay that sounds like it from what they're saying that might clear up some of the stuff that's you know going on with me so I thought hey let's give it a shot and uh you know I I started out uh pretty cautious just because I was you know I had I had I would you know how like you know type a endurance athletes sometimes they get real kind of I guess more or less religious with their nutritional approach and it's yep. like when you flip it on the head it's kind of like ah what do I do yep. um but I kind of went forward with it and you know fortunately for for me being able to stick with it uh I noticed some pretty quick results from just the day-to-day -day type of stuff so like I was probably on it for less than a week uh before I started kind of sleeping through the night consistently which was a huge kind of like, uh, you know, point of interest to me because uh, the, the fact that I had been struggling to sleep through the night was a new, a new thing for me. Like historically before that, like when I was in high school and college and stuff, I had no problem just going to bed, sleeping eight, nine hours and waking right. up the next morning. And uh, so I, that may be why that stuck out to me so much because I used to be what I would consider like a really good sleeper. So was your diet before you switched, was it a low fat diet, uh, basically moderate protein, high carb, low fat? Like how, how did your, do you, how did your macros kind of break down? 
Yeah, the way I describe it is it was a whole food kind of high carb diet. So a lot of fruits, vegetables, healthy, quote unquote, healthy grains, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and uh, macro wise, you know, I was, I wasn't avoiding fat, like, you know, some people I see there, and they tend to be the ones that kind of, I think, flip the switch metabolically a lot harder if they try to do a high fat approach where they're just consciously trying to as low as possible because i wasn't avoiding fat but i was conscious in my mind that i needed to get more carbs than anything yeah. so my carb windows were probably in that 60 to 70 percent range yeah. and then a, probably a pretty even split between fat and protein with the remainder so probably anywhere from 15 to 20 percent fat 15 to 20 percent protein yep. um, on any given day and uh you know, my first move was, you know, with, with the advice of Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney, uh, was like, let's, let's hit the reset button. So I essentially switched up all my food to kind of, you know, fit more or less that clinical ketogenic diet. Sure. Um, Probably 70, 80% fat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what, I noticed was like, I kind of said some of those day-to-day things started to clear up right away. Like I slept through the night. Uh, I had like consistent, even energy levels at work. Uh, it took me probably a little longer, maybe three to four weeks to really flip the switch in, in exercising. Uh, you know, one thing I'm always pretty vocal about when I'm talking to someone who's looking to take it on is, uh, the best time to switch is when you can have like an off season or you're at a point where you're about to slowly build up because Yep. When you flip your nutrition on its head that much, you're creating a stressor in your body. Um, and until your body kind of figures that out, it's going to be an additional stress on top of what else you're doing. So if you try to implement this in your most stressful point of year, it can backfire on you pretty easily. Yep. yep. Um, so, so me, fortunately, like this stuff kind of came to a surface when I had just finished kind of a, a racing season, I would say, like I did 350 milers in about a nine week time frame. So I didn't have any other races on the schedule. I was at a point where, you know, if I needed to reduce volume, I could. I didn't have any reason to be doing intensity at that point. It was just yep. kind of like I got three, four weeks to kind of do a gradual build up and just kind of get running again. And uh, what I noticed during them, you know, you hear all sorts of stories of people like they don't want to move at all, which is totally fine if you're in that camp. Like, I mean, I, 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 I tell people if, if you need to take four weeks off from exercise and just focus yep. on nutrition and let that switch flip. Yep. For me, it was a little different. I had days where I felt great. Um, and then I had maybe the other half of the days I go for a run and I would be running a minute per mile slower than my normal pace and feel like I was running a minute per mile faster than my normal pace. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, on days when I noticed that I would just be like real cautious not to like push too hard and, you know, I cut it short if I really felt like unmotivated to be out there. You know, my goal was really just not to create any stress from an exercise side of things. Cause I kind of knew that the uh, nutrition side of thing was still trying to work through stuff. So did I think have, that. I was, okay. Did you have any fat adaptation issues, any GI problems going from 60% carb to, you know, more than 70% fat? Uh, not too bad. There was a few food groups that got a little, were a little tough to kind of get used to. Uh, you know, I had a bit of a challenge with eggs at first where mm-hmm. for the first maybe year or even maybe I'm trying to remember exactly, but at least the first year or so, like if I didn't like thoroughly cook the egg, so like hard boil style, mm-hmm. I would notice I'd get like some stomach distress from that. Interesting. And then if I had like too much like coconut oil or something like that, you know, I would notice there was like definitely like a point where like my stomach decided, yeah, you had too much of that. But 
Um, a lot of people OD on coconut oil. Yeah. Don't switch yeah. to a ketogenic diet. <laughs> yeah, but you know the other the, everything else seemed to go pretty well. Um, and even those things, I, I I guess more or less built up a better tolerance to it. I can eat I can eat eggs. I mean, I've, sometimes I'll eat nine eggs in a sitting, and I'll scramble them sunny side up, poach all kinds of different ways, and I don't notice any really weird gut issues with that anymore. Um, so it might've just been kind of my body reprogramming the amount of like, you know, bile and stuff like that, that gets yep. secreted to help digest some of those type of food groups that it just yep. wasn't being asked to do in the past. And, you know, the other interesting thing that, that who knows if this was a contributor or not, but, uh, when, when you eat something, it kind of pings your body to release bile for digestion. Yep. So if you're eating like six times a day, you're going to ping your body and it's going to try to release that bile, but it's going to be like, it's not going to have recovered from the last ping. So you might be getting these really, really small or like inefficient, like bile production to action. And then, and then you end up with like the acid reflux and like stomach issues. Yep. Whereas I think, um, when you kind of really get intuitive and let your body and you start working with your body, uh, at least with a high fat approach, it's like you tend to gravitate to fewer meals and bigger meals, which just gives your body your digestive tract, the bile, like build up and stuff to be get have more time to kind of re reset. So I think once you kind of get in, get into that point where you're past this uh, more or less psychological routine of I need to eat three meals a day and two snacks and you get more into, oh, I'm really hungry right now. I'm going to eat until I'm full and then I'm going to stop. And then I'll eat again when I'm hungry. You know, you end up kind of doing what your body wants it to do. Mm -hmm. What I, what I realize what, when people make a switch like this from a traditional diet to uh, whether it be a carnivore diet or a ketogenic style diet, there's generally two very noticeable stages of adaptation. One is like the first month of getting fat adapted, fluid rebalancing, you know, nutritionally adapted. And then the second one is like you mentioned, uh, performance. And it sounds like adapting to performance took you longer. It took me longer as far as the gym. I was not lifting near the weight or the intensity. And it took, you know, probably two full months, you know, eight, eight plus weeks until I recovered the my previous training ability and then, you know, took off from there. So how long did it kind of take you to, uh, for your performance to catch up? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. And if your listeners really want to kind of do a deep dive, I would recommend checking out Dominic Diagostino stuff. Yeah. He's done a yeah. lot of like, uh, he's been a, a really good vocal person in terms of, you know, give it time to adapt and, you yep. know, you might have to be a lot more patient than you, than you think. Uh, for me, um, I think I noticed a performance kind of, uh, balance where I felt like I was kind of back to the level I was on the high carb diet within a couple of months. Um, but I also remember like when I had been doing it for probably almost two years, I had a season where I just felt like I found a new level of recovery mm -hmm. and a new level of just being able to kind of like hit some really hard workouts, bounce back, do a race. Um, and some of it could have also just been adaptation to the sport too. Cause I'd been in the sport then for, uh, about two and a half years. So there's likely a few things at play there. But one thing that really kind of clicked for me was in 2013, I did this, I was actually peaking for this race that I'd won the prior year. It was the 50 mile U S championships, uh, called the Tussie mountain back 50 mile. Mm -hmm. And I had a really good training block going into that. And I had done some workouts that I 
had never hit before in terms of kind of paces and, and duration and stuff like that. Uh, and I did that race and I had a really good day. I ended up getting second to a guy named Matt Flaherty who he, he absolutely nailed it that day. And he's a, he's a solid, solid 50 miler when he's on. Yep. Um, so my first thought was like, you know, I, I regressed, I got second instead of first, like I did the year before. I didn't really kind of contextualize how good of a race I actually had that year. And I probably should have because they actually had changed the course a little bit and it was a little harder. How'd your time um, compare? Uh, it was faster. I'm trying to remember how much. I but you were I, faster. Yeah, I ran like, <laughs> I think it was like 14 minutes faster too. So like, yep. um, I should have probably been a little more open-minded about. The a little easier on yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, at then, you know, at that, at that point I was kind of like, um, I was kind of like, you know, that was the race I was peaking for. I really didn't have a whole lot of plans for the rest of the year. Yep. So I, you know, being kind of curious, like I mentioned before, uh, I was, I had, there was a couple local races near my house. Uh, when I was living in Wisconsin, I was like, I kind of want to really test the recovery thing. So my original plan was I was going to do a 50 mile the following weekend and then try to do another one that following week and just see what would happen if I did three and three weekends. Yep. Uh, and what ended up happening is after that, that race, that Tussie mountain back, I got probably maybe three or four days into the next week. And I felt so good that, um, I decided to scrap the middle one, the one the following weekend and just see what I could do, giving myself 13 days recovery. Um, and I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, but I went to this race kind of, it's a really flat 50 miler in Chicago called the Chicago lakefront 50 mile. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember it's, it's pretty low key now. It it actually re rename or kind of reprogrammed, uh, in the past it's been like, the host of some like, yeah, I think the, I think even the world record was set there or the American record was. And, uh, you know, so I went there thinking, okay, cool. This is a fast course. This matches my training really well. Yep. Um, and I remember going out in the first mile thinking that I was just kind of like cruising at like a, maybe a six thirty mile pace or something. And then I was probably about half a mile and I looked down at my, at my watch and it showed that I was going five, five forty five uh, minute per mile pace. And I was like, you're really I was like, yeah, I was like, okay. Um, my perceived effort is, is skewed a little bit here. <laughs> and, but I kind of realized that that pace was probably a little, um, aggressive for, for, for where I was at and, um, and kind of just realistically after having done a, what was supposed to be my peak race of less than two weeks earlier. Uh, so I slowed down a little bit, but I ended up just having a solid day there and averaged about six fifteen per mile pretty consistently throughout. And, ran a five hour, 12 minute, 50 miler. Um, which for me, I was excited about. I mean, there's, yeah. there's guys who just slayed 50 miles in the past, especially back in the day when flat road ultras were more popular. There's guys like Bruce Fordyce and uh, Barney Klecker have gotten down into like the low 450 range. Yeah. Um, but for me, I was like, wow, I wasn't even really targeting that race. And I got it, you know, a 512. Uh, you know, I was pretty happy about that. So, You're um, yeah. You know, so I was, I was really intrigued. Like I, I felt like I kind of found a new level where like the nutrition, the, you know, the high fat, low carb approach was starting to kind of really click. My body was starting to really respond well to it from a few different angles. Um, and then, uh, you know, that race actually got me invited to this other event called the desert solstice track invitational, uh, which is the race that we were talking about earlier where I set yep. the American record. And, um, I actually did it two years before that as well and set the American record in 2013 for hundred miles at 11 hours and 47 minutes. And then when I did it in 2015 and ran 1140, 
that was I was breaking my own American record. So, so. yeah, <laughs> were those both on high fat, low carb diets? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so both of those records were basically you you broke your old record, but those were both using the non traditional, you know, high fat diet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's been something that's been just probably almost as an interesting kind of a approach for me as the training in itself. You know, I'm, I'm always more interested or intrigued by the process building up to a race sometimes as, as the race itself. Cause you almost have to be to enjoy a sport like that. We're going to spend that much time getting ready for it. Cause otherwise you're just putting too many eggs in one basket for a single day, in my opinion. Yep. So kind of just like, you know, I've, I've certainly evolved along the lines of, uh, you know, how to structure a high fat approach within an extreme endurance, uh, training program. And I, I continue to, and I'm, I'm learning some things now that I'm thinking are maybe even things I'll continue to kind of tweak around and play around with. And, um, but yeah, you know, I've done a lot where I kind of do what I would call a periodized nutrition where, you know, when people think of a, a real good build up to a race. Usually it's not just doing the same run every day. Sure. You know, usually you're doing like, uh, you know, you're building a strong aerobic base and then you're starting to do some, like some speed work and then you're really specifying to the race pace distance as you get closer to the race. So, you know, you, you look different depending on what part of the year they would pull like a day or a week out of, you know, there might be a recovery period where you're doing very little and there might be a peak training where you're doing quite a bit. Right. And so your so, nutrition is going to change along with how your, your training mm-hmm. is changing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I think is worth exploring because like, you know, on my biggest training days, I might metabolize two to three times my resting metabolic rate. Yep. Uh, the day after hundred miler, I'm probably burning exactly my resting metabolic rate because I'm not doing a whole lot of moving at all. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so. Yeah. And you mentioned you are eating mostly a carnivore diet, but you are you are using some carbohydrate. And so I, I really, I was really curious how and when you structure your carbohydrate usage. Yeah. So, you know, I've gone through the gamut of how to structure a high fat diet in terms of like, you know, very little meat to a whole bunch of meat, um, and everything in between. Yep. And I found that like what I've done for the, this most recent training block. And I feel like it's, I'm really finding a groove with it is I kind of, start the day if i'm if i'm trying to say like okay what am i gonna do nutritionally today i start with like a base of two pounds of red meat and i build out from there so you know two pounds of red meat is probably depending on uh if if it's a really fatty source which it usually is i'm usually trying to focus on the fattiest cuts of meat i can you know that's kind of like two thousand calories yeah you know so it's more or less resting metabolic for me um so like, that's kind of like, all right, those are my basic needs without doing anything. And then I kind of build out from there. So on some of the bigger training weeks and days, you know, I might flex up to close to four pounds of meat sometimes. Uh, certainly if you include things like eggs and, you know, full fat dairy and things like that, uh, I'm getting up to that four pound range, but then, yeah, I am definitely, uh, I'm not quite like Sean where I'm just like ribeye after ribeye after ribeye, <laughs> um, but I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sprinkling in some things that I think are kind of like more or less like keeping me metabolically flexible enough to like be able to still get into ketosis really easily, uh, but also be able to kind of slip out and nail a really like hard, long workout if I need to. 
And some of the foods that I really have found work really well for me in that department uh, are like, you know, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, melons, berries, and raw honey is usually where most of my carbohydrates come from. Yep. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, I'll trickle some of that stuff in there when I'm in that kind of the higher training peak phase of phase of work. And so I guess, okay, this is going to lead into one of my most specific questions for you. And that has to do with muscle glycogen. Cause mm-hmm. that's one of, <laughs> and, and so people are like, oh, okay, you're not eating any carbs. How are you filling your muscle glycogen up? Is that one of the reasons why you are introducing carbs to help, you know, kind of top off muscle glycogen mm-hmm. levels? Some of the research I've done is in, I think it's starved populations, basically <laughs> deep ketosis, uh, they maintain about 70% of muscle glycogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we can talk about the metabolic pathway of how that muscle glycogen stays replenished without carbohydrates. Uh, but I don't think it stays as topped off as it would be without, you know, eating, you know, exogenous carbohydrates. So is that one of the reasons why you implement them? Yeah. You know, this is something I'm, I'm also kind of curious in. I, I usually operate off what I call field testing. So like if I do something and my workouts aren't working well, then I'm going to change it. Yep. And if I do something and I feel like my workouts are going great or improving, I kind of like look into it more and start experimenting around it a bit. So what I've kind of concluded, I guess, in my mind or for me is that like when I'm in peak training, you know, I might be training two, if you count some gym work, like strength and mobility three times a day. Uh, and I'm very confident that my muscle glycogen can easily replenish maybe even all the way with fats and proteins, especially if proteins aren't restricted, like we'd maybe see on a more clinical ketogenic diet. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah. We'll we'll revisit that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's, it's something I'm going to probably play around with a bit after Western States too. Uh, but so what I'm interested in more is the rate at which those glycogen stores can be replenished. Yep. So uh, I don't fear glycogen replenishment through protein and fats, uh, but if I go out for a hard workout that's maybe two hours in length with some speed in it in the morning, and three to four hours later, I'm going to do like an aerobic jog to the gym and then ah, strength work, Yes. Um, that's where maybe I would want a little quicker muscle glycogen replenishment. So that's where the, the carbohydrates come in. That's um, brilliant. So let's, let's just iron that out for listeners. So if you're training twice a day, if you're a true, you know, human performance outlier like Zach or Sean, maybe it makes sense to add some carbs in to replenish glycogen faster. Uh, mm-hmm. Because like you, I'm not concerned about muscle glycogen being replenished uh, without carbohydrates because I'm pretty sure it's going to replenish itself. Uh, but it's just like you said, it might take a little bit more time. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've played around with that even too, where like I'll have a part in my training or in my season where I have a little more flexibility to kind of just play around with stuff. And, you know, I've done it before where like I've done a a big, a big workout or a big race or something. And then, you know, usually after that I go really low carb, uh, like clinical ketogenic 30 to 50 gram kind of stuff. Um, and I'm doing that in the presence of very little physical activity so if I do that and spend like, you know, three or four days just recovering from the, the muscle damage from that specific event, uh, if I, I could go out that fourth day and do a 400 meter workout on a track, which is very glycolytic, yep. um, and I can nail that workout. 
it's so it's not a question for me of whether I can restore my glycogen through fat and protein. It's a question of like what I said before is like, how quickly do I need to do it? Yep. So like if I have the luxury to take a couple of days off, I can keep my carbs and stuff. I can keep my carbs next to nothing. And, and I'm not worried about, you know, going out for a hard workout. Um, those scenarios are not as common because usually when I'm doing a workout like that, I'm not, you know, taking, you know, that much time off between efforts. So it's more or less just my curiosity to kind of figure that stuff out. And it's been an interesting topic between Sean and myself as well, because, you know, all of Sean's workouts are glycolytic. Uh, the difference between Sean and myself is every time he does a workout, he's got about 23 hours before his next one. Right. So his window of time between efforts are quite a bit longer. Um, and this is maybe where we can get into the protein thing too. The other thing that's been really interesting to me and something I kind of want to play around with is using like not fearing protein and using it as a way to restore glycogen as opposed to doing as much of a carb sneak as I've done in the past. Yes. Um, and part of the reason I'm interested in that is because Sean's obviously getting all his glycogen pretty much from that. Uh, um, and he seems to have no issues. Uh, and with this last training cycle I've done, like I mentioned, where I'm kind of basing everything on that, like two pounds of, of, uh, you know, fatty cuts of red meat and then building out and then sometimes hitting upwards to three or four pounds of, of what you consider carnivore approved stuff. Yep. Uh, what I've noticed is I haven't had to do as much of a carb bump as I have in the past. So I'm really interested to find out like when you're not limiting protein, if you can almost or entirely eliminate the need of carbohydrates, even within a big training block. So um, and we actually had a guy named Charles Washington on our podcast yesterday. It, it won't probably release for another week and a half or so, but um, he's a marathon runner, endurance athlete uh, who does a carnivore approach. He's been doing it for like, I think around 10 years now. Yeah. Yep. So I was really interested in, in his take on that. And that's kind of what his message was too, was, you know, if you don't limit your appetite, like if you're hungry, make sure you eat and don't fear protein. Like you might not need to do as many of the carb snakes. So that's something I want to play around with a little bit. So, yeah. And I can tell you, this is my experience with it. I made a mistake that I think a lot of people make, and you mentioned metabolic flexibility, which is what I think people should focus on, but Mm -hmm. where people often put all their attention on is chasing ketones. And if you chase Mm -hmm. ketones, whether urine test or blood test, uh, you'll realize if you limit your protein, you'll be able to get your ketones higher. But you know, as you know, some of my listeners mentioned, I, and I've talked about, I did a very strict ketogenic protocol and I was chasing ketones for not body, uh, composition reasons, but for brain performance. I wanted to test to be like, could I get more? Cause I was it long story short, I was trying to get as much brain power as I could. And I, you know, wasted away over 20 pounds of muscle in a short amount of time by limiting protein to about 0.75 grams per lean body pound. Uh, and it was, you know, I learned the lesson the hard way, but now, you know, someone that would look at my diet would say, well, you're eating way too much protein, <laughs> at least to be in a ketogenic diet. Uh, but I, I build muscle, I lose fat, I feel great. And I eat way, way more protein than most, you know, ketogenic, even carnivores. Uh, I'll even go towards not even all ribeyes, uh, you know, even include some leaner cuts of, you know, red meat. Uh, you know, I'll even sneak a piece of chicken and even though I don't, you know, don't, don't do that a lot, but, 
I have a much higher protein intake than most people. Uh, and I think there's going to be individual variation in how people perform in their protein to fat ratios. But in general, when I tell people, and most people come to ketogenic or carnivore for various reasons, but the most popular is, you know, they want to lose fat mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think limiting protein or that being afraid of protein and chasing ketones is one of the biggest mistakes that I see, you know, time and again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, uh, we talked about this with Dr. Ben Bickman and it's like, you see people posting their, their ketone levels and they're like, Oh yeah, I I did my blood ketone and it was four to five millimoles or something like that. Right. Right. It's like, geez, you're so deep into ketosis. It's like, um, what's you're wasting the, ketones. Yeah. You're wasting them. Cause yeah, that's a waste <laughs> product essentially, whether you use exactly. the or the ketone strip. And like, you know, for me, when I'm in peak training and I get curious enough, I don't test as often anymore just because I'm, I like to be more intuitive and I like to, like I said before, kind of operate on a field test as opposed to some, some random number. Um, but I will test from time to time because people always are interested and I like to be able to give them an accurate assessment. Uh, but yeah. like if I'm, if I'm barely in ketosis, I'm like, great this is cool. Like I'm close enough where I can pop out, but I'm also far enough in where I won't have to spend much time to get back in. And, you know, that's another thing that I've noticed that I've gotten, I guess, better at after doing it for as long as I have, you know, for me now, like, um, I will have a day, like if it's a, it's a fairly active day, I'll be it. But, um, like I had a day a couple weeks ago where I ate a large sweet potato, a tablespoon of raw honey, four cups of cantaloupe and two cups of blueberries. And, um, the next day I, I did a workout and when I got back, I was, it was in the level of ketosis. Yeah. So it was yep. like, you know, it's pretty easy for me to move in and out. And I like walking that kind of line where, uh, if I need a punch of high gear, I've got very good access to that. Yep. And if I need to just run all day with very little fuel, I've got access to that as well. So, yep. um, yeah, it's just and- my opinion. There's a there's a big misconception of what it means when they someone is measuring ketones. And so you could measure zero ketones when you do a test, mm-hmm. but you don't realize you could still be running off fatty acids. And so, you know, a good way to think about keto, ketosis is these ketones are from incomplete fatty acid oxidation, which means it's basically a spillover mechanism. So you could still be burning fat and and you're just not burning excess fat, meaning like you didn't, you're not eating more fat than your body's going to be burning. And so you could have a fat based metabolism and register minimal to no ketones. And so unless someone is trying to get therapeutic ketone levels to treat epilepsy or cancer mm-hmm. or some medical condition, you know, to me, measuring your ketones doesn't tell you that much because you could just be efficiently using them uh, as well. So there's a rate of production and usage and so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's so many different confounding effects that lead to that, that ketone measurement number. And it's just, uh, it's not the best thing for most people to, you know, put all their, you know, hope in. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Cause like, and it makes perfect sense when you look at it. Cause when you look at like a clinical ketogenic diet protocol, of like 30 to 50 grams a day, you know, that was designed for people who are dealing with these like, you know, less than ideal situations like type two diabetics, epilepsy seizures, metabolic disorders, and things like that. That's what that program was originated for. So like, um, when you kind of take that plan and implement it within a completely different context, 
uh, I think you need to be very open to manipulating it in a way that's maybe going to work better for your lifestyle. I mean, lifestyle is such a huge factor in my opinion. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's also one thing I always, I'll have a, a discussion with people from time to time when I'm doing like console calls and things where, you know, they'll come in to me and they'll be kind of a little bit up in arms because they're like, okay, uh, I've been so strict 30 grams of carbs a day. Uh, I need to talk to Zach and see what I can do differently. Cause right now my performance isn't improving. Uh, and I think sometimes they come in just terrified that I'm going to tell them they got to go even lower carb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly. like, it's like, yeah. And, and then I think they kind of walk away a little relieved when I say like, no, that's probably not the move. You're probably as fat adapted as you can get. And we need to ask the question now is like, how fat adapted do you need to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and let's find that spot because we want you to be able to be metabolically flexible. We want you to be able to, um, you know, feel good on a hard workout as well as a, just a long sustained workout. So, um, and I, you know, like I kind of mentioned before, like my next question to that is like, you know, where does protein fall in that and how, what can we expect in terms of how quickly that would happen? Uh, so, um, It'll be, it'll be fun. Like, I guess N equals one experiment that I think I'm going to take on after Western States and just kind of see, see kind of continue that experiment with, uh, with the protein. Know, yeah. Protein and, and, and meats with no shame, I guess. <laughs> yep. Well, so, I mean, I'm doing that N equals one experience myself. Uh, and you know, I, it was forced upon me cause I was like, I've had enough muscle wasting. Like, you know, I was willing to set, set aside physique at goals, you know, building muscle, burning fat, upping my fat intake, et cetera, with a ketogenic diet. Cause I didn't think that was optimal for physique, uh, but I needed it, for, but I wanted it for the brain issues. Uh-huh. Uh, but after losing so much muscle, I'm like, you know, I was, I came to this for the brain performance, but I'm not willing to sacrifice this much muscle. Nonetheless, I don't think this is very healthy to be wasting away. <laughs> uh, and so since I've like upped my protein intake a lot and, you know, some days it's, you know, half my calories are from protein, half from fat. And that's probably not uncommon. I'm not crazy tracking my macros or anything like that. Uh, but I just know I eat much higher protein than is typically recommended on a keto or even a carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I feel great and I perform better that way. And I actually carry less body fat that way too. So it's like, it seems like it's been all wins for, for my N equals one experiment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's just, some of it is, I think the, the ketogenic protocol was, was well-meaning, uh, because you know, it was either a lot of it was working with people who probably did need to reduce a lot of the, they didn't want to go glycolytic necessarily. Um, but, uh, yeah, like we said, you got to kind of contextualize it. And then the other side of that too, is there was, there's been scares in the health and fitness industry about mTOR and, um, what role that actually plays in, like longevity and things like that. And it just seems like that's yet again, another misconception. Yeah. And you know, when there's a few things that get bundled together, insulin, mTOR, IGF one. And, you know, I studied all these things for basically 20 years because I was very interested in bodybuilding and physique. And these are all things bodybuilders like see as good. Like these are, these are, these are growth hormones. (laughs) These are things that are going to make our muscles grow. So it depends at the lens that you're looking at it from. Like if you're training and you need repair and you need growth, like these are good things. If you're sedentary and these growth hormones are used to growing fat and adipose and cancer, then, you know, an oncologist is going to have a completely different view of these hormones than 
you know, someone that is very active <laughs> and training a lot. So, you know, context, you know, I, I sound like a broken record about context because, but I, it really does, you know, it, it matters. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you, what is your thoughts on that with like someone who is more or less uh, like at best, like, you know, working out like three times a week for 30 minutes or something like that and just trying to like uh, get away from an obese, you know, lifestyle uh like because i like i think it's um uh who is it that uh does a lot of the higher protein stuff for like a limited amount of time just to kind of get things going and then they gradually kind of renormalize it a little bit yep. uh, I, actually, I actually think the reduction of carbohydrate is more important than a fat to protein ratio and it's especially for the population you're talking about is obese type 2 diabetes you know all kinds of health uh problems and the reason is when you limit protein, protein is, I, um, you know, one, probably the most satiating macronutrient uh, mm -hmm. that, that you can eat. And when you limit that, then it's going to be made up by, you know, with fat, then you're going to eat more fat. You'll, you'll tend to, you know, consume more calories. Uh, so, you know, someone that's obese, <laughs> first of all, getting rid of carbohydrates is going to take them very, very far. And they don't even need to worry about protein fat ratios, but you know, I wouldn't limit protein even, even in that population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Naiman is the guy I was thinking about. He's yeah, yeah, sure. a protein guy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, that's always interesting to me. Cause like I'm, my thought is too like, uh, obviously you don't want to send too strong of a message of scarcity. I don't think, uh, but you know, if you're someone who's walking around like 30, 40, 50% body fat, like, um, that's a lot of fuel. That's a lot of fat that fuel. So, a lot of fat fuel that you got strapped on. <laughs> right, right. You know, and to give that perspective too, you know, sometimes the, the message I'll hear in the endurance world is you need to get some pretty lean athletes. And then it'll be someone, well, I'm, I'm too skinny to do a high fat approach because I don't have enough body fat or I don't have any body fat. It's like, yeah. no, like even at your absolute leanest, you could get through a really long endurance event on just fat if you needed yep. to. Yep. Um, you probably want to fuel back up afterwards. But, uh, you know, that is your big, uh, quote unquote, unexhaustible fuel source uh, for most, like, for most purposes. So, exactly. yeah, so like, you know, someone who's, you know, clinically obese, they've got, you know, God knows how many days, weeks, months, <laughs> years, exactly. maybe a fuel kind of there that can get utilized. So uh, I think you get yourself, your body really good at being able to metabolize that and then, um, you know, you can probably abstain from exogenous sources of it if you really want to kind of whittle away at that. Yep. Yep. So Zach, we're getting close to time here, but I have one question that I really wanted to dive in with you because you mentioned it earlier as one of the reasons why you even started and that's sleep. So I've treated sleep disorders, uh, specifically obstructive sleep apnea, mm -hmm. and I've always been interested in sleep. And one of the things that I have noticed and I've struggled with in the past, especially you know, in this physique bodybuilding world is when body fat gets too low, you know, my sleep is just terrible. So has your sleep been consistently improved with, uh, you know, a higher fat diet, moving the carbs, because as a ultra marathoner, your body fat's pretty low. Uh, and so I'm wondering if that, what do you think about that? Because, you know, I have thoughts around sleep disturbances, you know, excessive training, low body fat, things that may not be optimal for sleep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's an issue. And I think like you kind of have to, especially with the way that I'm training, I'm, there's a few things I'm usually pretty cautious about. Try to avoid doing too much workout close to dusk or after dark. 
um, cause that tends to rev me up and then I have a little harder time sleeping. Mm. Uh, sometimes what I've noticed in the past is if I let my carbs go kind of like super low ketogenic, low zero carb, kind of a setup, yep. uh, that sometimes will disrupt sleep when I'm getting really lean. Uh, and usually the fix for that and the fix that I've used with other folks is, you know, just kind of push the carbs you are going to eat back towards the end of the day. And that usually yep. fixes it. Um, so it's kind of like the more or less a carb backloading approach, I guess. Yep. yep. Uh, but you know, some of it too is like, you know, I recognize it as a sign. It's like when I'm training really hard, I'm definitely, you know, getting to that point where like the, there's a potentially a margin of diminishing returns and how much you do and how much you get back from it. Right. And my goal is always to kind of micro stress, improve, micro stress, improve, and then do the, do your due diligence and giving yourself enough time to kind of spend a longer time micro stressing and getting yourself to the point you want to be rather than just like kind of hitting the gas full throttle and trying to cram everything into a, a few weeks to try to uh, get ready for something that you didn't, you know, take enough time to prepare for. Yep. Uh, so when I'm in peak training and stuff like that, if I have a night where I don't sleep very good, I kind of take that as a bit of a sign, like, all right, you stressed yourself enough somewhere, uh, back off for a day, you know, maybe do a deload week yep. and make sure that sleep kind of gets back. So you don't kind of, uh, couple, two, three, four days in a row like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the way I've usually used it. I usually kind of as the canary in the coal mine. If I have one night of bad sleep, it's like, okay, that's the sign. That's what my body, my body's telling me something's off. Let's address that before I go and try to, you know, nail a huge workout or something like that. And I think it's interesting in your context and the bodybuilding context, because, you know, when you get into that cutting phase, it's like, that's kind of your, like that, that sports it's the stress it's the yeah I, I think it has a lot to do with cortisol i think the body it has a stress response where it's uh you know cortisol is basically to wake you up it's an alert uh mm -hmm. it's an alert hormone that's going to increase blood glucose it's basically saying go out hunt find me yeah, food get some food I, I need <laughs> exactly and so for some people you know if they maintain too low of a body fat they won't be able to sleep but it's different, I find, for people that are going through adaptation symptoms. So if someone goes from a standard American diet to a carnivore diet, I almost would tell these people to expect some sleep disturbances because their cortisol is going to rise. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of times sleep patterns, it takes a bit before they re-regulate. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There can be some, like, some little, like a little bit of a storm before the calm, I guess. It, it, there it. really is a lot of storm before the mm -hmm. calm. But that, some of that does go back to, to what we talked about earlier as well, where like if you try to drop in a, a really big nutritional change on top of a very stressful time of year, you can probably expect to have some of that stuff yeah, then for sure. Compounding issues. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. If you can, you're doing yourself probably a really big favor if when you switch your nutrition drastically, if you can remove another big stressor, because then at least you're kind of trying to find a balance that your body's used to. So yeah. You know, sometimes my question then is, were you a good sleeper uh, already? In which case, then your stress levels are probably fairly well balanced. And then we just remove one stressor and put another one in there as you metabolically kind of adapt. But if they're coming in as a bad sleeper, it's like you might have to reduce more stress just to kind of get you back down to a balance or an equilibrium yeah. uh, to be able to afford yourself the ability to kind of de-stress. But uh, in some circumstances too, it might just be like, you got to, you know, deal with it for a little bit as your body flips that metabolic switch. And it might just take a little longer because, you know, some of those cortisol spikes can be counterproductive when you're trying to get fat adapted as well. Yep. And it's one of the, one of the things that I struggle with is people, 
that want to experiment with, you know, whether ketogenic or carnivore diet. And I laid out basically a 30 day guide, but, the, but my problem is, you know, 30 days is usually enough to get through initial adaptation sy- symptoms, mm-hmm. but the things like you've mentioned, like performance, other things, hormone regulation, they take longer than that. You know, it could take mm-hmm. months. Uh, it could even take years for some people, depending on the, the amount of metabolic damage, but you can't tell someone like, all right, let's go do a two, let's do a two year experiment, put your head down. Uh, you know, that's a lot to ask for people. So it's something, you know, I'm always like, well, give it 30 days. And it's like, if you see improvement in 30 days or, you know, give it another 30 days, mm-hmm. uh, give it 90 days. Uh, but yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it would, it's nice if we could bring the barrier down to entry. Uh, but, but, you know, some, some of the times a barrier to entry is kind of rough, but like you said, if you take out some extra stressors, like don't go run a hundred miles right after you switch your diet or something like that, uh, that, you know, some of those things could help. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, Zach, it's, we're at an hour, man. This has been great talking with you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. This has been a fun one. Yeah, this has been great. I'm sure a lot of people are going to love it and they'll probably have questions. So if, if you want people to find you on social media, do you want them to? And if so, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, no, that'd be great. I, I, uh, if they head over to Instagram, it's just Zach, Z-A-C-H, bitter, B-I-T-T-R, um, or at, I guess. And then Twitter, it's just at Z bitter. Um, yeah. those are two spots I'm pretty frequent on. Um, or if they want links to that or to check out some of my stuff, uh, my website's just zachbitter.com. Yep. And I'll put links in on the website in the show notes. Uh, and Zach, it's nice to have you on Twitter. Cause that's what I always say. I feel like I'm the only one there sometimes. So it's nice, <laughs> nice that you're on Twitter too. Uh, of course, Instagram's a place to be. So all of these links will be in the show notes and I would highly recommend checking out the human performance outlier that Zach hosts with Dr. Sean Baker, uh, because it's really good. You know, I've actually, I've learned a ton from you guys. And so I appreciate that. And Zach, thank you for the time. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. See you, Zach. Bye-bye. Bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.